During my time of uh, sabbatical, I had opportunity to do some study in the uh, book of Romans. And so over the next while, we're going to be uh, spending some time in the book of Romans. Um, deeply uh, indebted to N.T. Wright for uh, a course that he taught and some of his writings on Romans, uh, as well as others. But much of what uh, uh, I have to say owes a debt of gratitude to him. Uh, the book of Romans is uh, it's an interesting and engaging book. Uh, true. Uh, Some think of it as a New Testament book that's simply uh, filled with doctrine and that scares a few people off. Uh, Figure Romans will be uh, difficult and at times it is difficult. But essentially Romans brings us God's gospel, God's good news about what God is really like, especially in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And we come to see what human beings are really like and what we so desperately need And Roman unveils for us what God has done to provide salvation and all who believe and and for all who believe and and what a Christian lifestyle looks like. So in short, uh, Romans provides us, uh, if you will, a worldview uh, more than a book, more than doctrinal treatise. It's a deeply passionate letter written by Paul to a community in Rome that faced certain uh, hardships. So he offers a way to look at life. You can think of uh, Romans as kind of a, a pair of prescription glasses that help you see life better. Paul wrote the book probably around 57 A.D. It was at a time when he was in Corinth. He was on his third missionary journey, really just wrapping it up. At that time, there were probably uh, uh, many synagogues in Rome in the first century A.D. Uh, The Pentecost story that we read in the book of Acts uh, tells of Jews who were from Rome, and and likely they were converted, and in turn, they established the Christian church in Rome. But the church probably also included a sizable Gentile or non-Jewish element as well. But all of this had changed suddenly and drastically in A.D. 49 when Emperor Emperor Claudius ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. So overnight, the Christian church in Rome became virtually 100% Gentile. Now, by the time Paul wrote in around 57 A.D., Jews had been allowed back into Rome, but they returned to a church that was dominated by Gentiles. So it's clear that uh, social tension existed between the Jewish and the Gentile Christians, where once the Jews were leaders of the Christian community, now they are in the minority. So it's in light of these tensions between uh, Jewish and Gentile Christians that Paul writes his letter to the Roman church. And as we progress through Romans, we'll note how Paul addresses some of these tensions It was also a time of, as I said, a time of great transition uh, for Paul. He engaged in a number of missionary journeys, uh, fighting many battles to define and defend what the gospel is. But now he's making plans to visit Jerusalem. He has an offering he wants to bring to Jerusalem. But he's certain that he's going to meet some opposition there. But his plans extend beyond just his visit to Jerusalem. What Paul would really like to do is he would like to go to Spain. Uh, He'd like to go there with the gospel. And so he would like to visit Rome on his way to Spain, likely so that he could establish Rome as sort of a base of operations for this mission. He would like them 
to be united with him around a vision of the gospel. So Paul writes this letter to Rome to address the very nature of the gospel. Heavily reliant on Hebrew scriptures and scriptural themes, Paul brings a message to the Roman church, points them to see what God has done to fulfill his promises and purposes in Jesus, the Messiah, the true king, the rightful Lord, bringing salvation to all the nations of the world. Paul brings the gospel. In these words, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're going to read together from Romans chapter 1, but before we do that, let's pray together. Lord our God, we're grateful for the gospel, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we're grateful for your written word that reveals your gospel to us so that we can see him, know him, be changed by him, and discover a way of life through him. We pray that as we see Jesus again this morning, that our lives would be impacted by his life. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 1, we're going to read together verses 1 to 17. It's found on page 1746 in your Bibles. Just a note, this is the uh, NIV 1984 uh, translation. Uh, You'll notice in the message uh, that I will be using uh, the NIV 2011 translation on the screen. You'll see that there are some differences um, in that. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. You also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God for Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last by God's, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. 
Graham Keith, a lifelong friend of Billy Graham, tells a story of an encounter that Billy once had on an elevator. Uh, the man who was with them in the elevator recognized Graham. You're, you're Billy Graham, aren't you? He said. Yes, Billy said. Well, the man said, you are a truly great man. And Billy immediately responded and he said, no, I'm not a great man. I just have a great message. Paul wants us to know in his letter to the Romans that he has a great message. Good news, or the Greek word, gospel. About someone who is more than a great man. Paul's good news is Jesus. Now Paul longs to come to Rome. He's faced a number of obstacles that have prevented him, but he's not ignoring Rome. Paul feels a deep sense of responsibility to preach the gospel to all kinds of people. I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and foolish. He's under obligation. Or another way of saying that is he's indebted to them. Now Paul's never had a face-to-face with the Roman church. He's never engaged with the general Roman population. And he speaks about being in debt to them. Someone once noted how it is that we can be in debt to others. One way we're in another's debt is because they've directly provided for us. You lend me $100 and I'm in debt to you until I pay it back. But there's a second way that we can be indebted to someone. If a person gives me $100 to pass along to you, I'm in debt to you until I hand that money over. Paul is obligated, Paul is indebted to the Roman church in this second way. To everyone, everywhere, Paul must pass along the gospel that God has revealed to him. Paul's sense of obligation is further revealed in the way that he identifies himself. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Unlike the usual simple identification in ancient letters, Paul gives us quite an elaborate introduction to himself. He he identifies his boss, his vocation, and the nature of his work. Paul, a servant or slave of Jesus Christ. Not Paul, a free citizen of Rome, but Paul, a slave. Paul topples all expectations. He's not free. He is bound to Jesus. And like Jesus, he identifies with the lowest of the low. But there's an irony here. In the Old Testament, many heroes of faith were called slaves. Like Moses, David, Elijah. All of those served with honor and privilege as servants or slaves of the Lord. So Paul clearly identifies that he works for Jesus, that he works for the Lord, just as Moses, David, Elijah had. Called to be an apostle. He's one of those whom Jesus himself had appointed. He's one of the people chosen by Christ to represent Christ to the world. His vocation is to help establish the foundation of the early Christian church. Set apart for the gospel of God. 
This is Paul's purpose in life. This is the work he's obligated to do. When Paul was confronted by the living Lord on the Damascus road, he was appointed to the task of proclaiming God's good news, God's gospel, to Jews and Gentiles. As one commentator puts it, God has appointed Paul to the special task of proclaiming and explaining the good news of God's intervention in Jesus Christ. Now, the good news is not good advice. It's not just a nice word about something. Good news isn't some kind of pep talk as if Paul was some New Testament Oprah. Good news defines Paul. Paul's good news is is deeply rooted in the scriptures of the Old Testament. It is, as he says, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul's enslaved to a message about what God has done in the middle of world history to change everything. Paul longs to come to Rome for the sake of this gospel. The good news, the gospel Paul proclaims, is Jesus the Messiah. The true king, the Lord of all. The gospel regarding his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, Paul expands what would be a typical introduction or greeting in a letter. In a a typical letter, it would have been a greeting something like this. Paul, a slave of King Jesus, to all in Rome who love God, grace to you in peace. You can see that's not what Paul does in this letter. Paul especially wants to reveal the full truth about Christ Jesus, to whom he's enslaved, to whom he's called into service. For Paul, King Jesus claims the whole world for himself. He's Lord of every square inch, including these Christians in Rome. Now we may not see it, but Paul's making a revolutionary declaration to the Roman Christians right under the nose of the Roman Empire. He writes to Rome, at that time, the greatest city in the world, home of the most powerful man in the world, Caesar. Now, Caesar doesn't consider himself just any man, just any kind of ruler. His official title included the phrase, Son of God. His birthday was declared good news, gospel. Caesar laid claim to the greatest allegiance and loyalty from the greatest empire the world had ever seen. Imagine writing a letter to Washington, D.C., declaring that the president and the United States are not the leaders of the free world. Imagine living in such a way that it is clear to the powers that be in Washington that we serve a greater power. Paul has one objective here. He wants the Christians in Rome to know that Jesus is the true king. That Jesus is the rightful Lord of the world. Paul wants the Roman church to know this truth and to live by it. What Paul has to to say about Jesus throws shade on Caesar, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. The birth, death, resurrection, reign of Jesus overcome any throne the world can establish. In terms of his human life, says Paul, the word literally 
used literally here is flesh, according to the flesh. Jesus is the descendant of David. Jesus comes from a royal house older than anything Rome can claim. He's in the line of David, king from a thousand years earlier. Perhaps what Paul wants us to do is to hear echoes of Psalm 2, where God declares to the raging nations, I've installed my king on Zion. You are my son. Today I've become your father. Jesus is the true Messiah King sent to the world in human flesh. And the same Jesus, resurrected from the dead, shows a power greater than any tyrant or bully would be able to muster. All Jews longed for the resurrection of the dead, but they expected that it would occur at the end of time. But here, Jesus conquers the final weapon of the empire... He breaks the power of death. He brings resurrection into the middle of time. His resurrection qualifies Jesus for a new status. The Son of God, by the Spirit, is now the Son of God in power. All of this points back to Israel's prophecies and psalms. The expectation was for a great king to come to rule over Israel, rescuing them from foreign oppression. In Paul's day, this would have meant Rome. Paul points to Jesus and he says, he's the one. He's God's good news. God has acted. The king has come. And our world is a different place because of it. So, we're called to believing obedience. God extends good news to all nations. Paul says, through him, Jesus Christ, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Paul receives the grace of being an apostle to call Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. That is, a believing obedience. This includes the Christians in Rome. And the message about the Son of God, the Messiah, the true King and Lord, is good news for all, including those in Rome. That's why Paul feels free to address the Christians in Rome that he doesn't even know. He considers them to be part of the sphere of ministry that God has assigned to him. And by extension, Paul would include us in this call to believing obedience. But here's the catch. The gospel, the good news, it's not like some advertising some product, take it or leave it. Our response to the gospel isn't optional. N.T. Wright notes, it's more like a command from an authority we would be foolish to resist. Caesar's messengers didn't go around the world saying, Caesar is Lord, so if you feel you need to have a Roman Empire kind of experience, you might want to submit to him. That is, God is bringing salvation to everyone who believes and you would be foolish to ignore this gospel because the gospel is powerful and effective for life. For this reason, Paul is eager to preach the gospel to the Roman Christians. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. The gospel is God's means for bringing salvation to the world. 
True, this is precisely the kind of message that would get Paul into trouble with the imperial authorities. No Caesar would take kindly to being informed that there is another true and rightful king and lord. And more, by all appearances, the message seems scandalously foolish. I mean, who would believe that a crucified itinerant teacher who would be God's long-promised Messiah would be Lord of the world? But God's power works in paradox. Paul's letter to the Corinthians is helpful in this regard. He contrasts the world's wisdom with God's wisdom. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. What appeared so foolish, Jesus dying on a cross, becomes the power of God when you believe. Now, the gospel isn't just some intellectual construct. The gospel is the power of God that makes people's actual lives actually better. The gospel doesn't just reveal some legal transaction, believe in Jesus so that you're saved and go to heaven when you die. No, salvation is much bigger than this. The whole notion of salvation has deep roots in the Old Testament. Salvation is God's rescue of His people from horrible disasters. Salvation is God's rescue of His people from things like slavery in Egypt. Salvation is God's rescue of the entire creation from the corruption and decay that was brought about through the sin of Adam and Eve. In fact, Paul will bring the whole notion of salvation to a climax in this book of Romans in chapter 8. Yes, God will rescue his people from death. Death's hold on us will not have the last word. It's a defeated enemy because of the resurrection of Jesus. But we aren't resurrected to some disembodied heaven. Oh yeah, yeah, we will all one day have new bodies like Jesus' resurrection body. But it's so that we will live in glory in God's new physical world. A world much like our present world. See, salvation then has this, this future and a present and even a past dimension. Salvation is a present reality and a future hope that's based on God's past action. It impacts how we live today and what will become of us tomorrow. And as this salvation of God breaks into our lives, we can say we were saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. And Paul is clear on how this happens. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. It's crucial that we wrestle with the meaning of the phrase righteousness of God. Uh, it's a theme that will be woven into the rest of the letter to the Romans. In the history of interpretation, there have been a few understandings of the term righteousness of God. Some say this is an attribute of God or a moral quality of God. God's own righteousness would be God's covenant faithfulness or covenant justice. 
Others say that the righteousness of God is God's salvation-creating power. It's a righteousness done by God. God intervenes to set right what was wrong with his creation. And finally, some would say that the righteousness of God is a righteousness from God. That God gives his people a status, a, a new legal standing before God. Now, I'm inclined to lean toward anti right on this one. Though many reformers see the third option as the crucial one, I believe that if we see God's righteousness as a combination of the first two, God's covenant faithfulness in action, then we will understand that within this, God's people are also granted a new status. God is faithful to his plans and his purposes for his people and for the whole creation. The gospel reveals God's covenant faithfulness operating through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Paul says that this is by faith from first to last. That is, all who are faithful, who believe, receive the benefit of Christ's faithfulness. N.T. Wright puts it like this. When Paul announces that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Lord of the world, He is, in that very act and announcement, unveiling before the world the great news that the one God of all the world has been true to his word, has dealt decisively with the evil that has invaded his creation, and is now restoring justice, peace, and truth. God, the creator of the world, longs to put the world right. God made the world. God rules the world. Bad things happen. And we wonder, is God going to do anything about it? And the biblical answer is, yes, God will. But the way that God acts is not the way we might expect. God calls out this single family and he makes a covenant with them. And through them, God says he'll bring his rescuing justice, that he'll act out his covenant faithfulness to the world. It is God's plan for putting the world right. So when Paul announces the gospel of Jesus, he's declaring that we can see how God's covenant justice or faithfulness, that God's righteousness has been unveiled. That we can now see that Jesus is the way that God has put the world right. And that Jesus is how God puts us right as well. So God's covenant faithfulness, God's justice, is God's love in action. And in response, we're called to believe. We're called to faith. Paul quotes from Habakkuk 2 verse 4. The righteous will live by faith. Now, got to understand, the prophet Habakkuk says this to Israel when they're in desperate, in dire straits. It is doom and gloom all around. But God declares that he is acting. Despite all the convulsions of history around Israel, God is doing a new thing. And it's in that context, Habakkuk says, The righteous person will live by his faithfulness. 
That is, our assurance is grabbing hold by faith unto God's faithfulness. We are called to believing obedience. God's good news, Jesus Christ, is life-changing news. Oh, sure, it, it, it appears scandalous and foolish. I mean, if we bank on our own wisdom or put faith in our world's standards of power, we will miss out on the wisdom and power of God's good news. It's the good news that compelled Paul to want to come to Rome. It's the good news that drove him to write a letter to the Romans whom he didn't even know. It's the good news that reveals God's covenant faithfulness. God is true to his word. He invaded his creation. Jesus Christ, in the flesh, descended from David through the Spirit, appointed as Son of God in power by his resurrection. I mean, no matter the raging nations, the wars and rumors of war, God remains faithful to his covenant through every generation. God is out to rescue the whole world. Just be sure you grab hold in obedience. The obedience that comes from faith. Let's pray together. God, as we begin to look at Paul's word to the Romans You've already caught our attention in noting that Jesus Christ, the only Lord, upends everything our world believes. That he is the one who is in charge, regardless of what we see around us. That that will have a huge impact on our lives. And we see in him that you have been faithful to your word. Faithful to your covenant. Faithful to exercising your righteousness. So that we will meet salvation. And it will change everything. Father, I pray that you would convict us. That we would have a believing obedience, a faith that acts, so that we can put this word, this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ on full display to the whole world. We pray this in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.